You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. Our sermon reading from Exodus today. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness, wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Exodus 19, 2-8. So how do we get here? I mean, not here. If you don't know how you got here, we should probably stop and seek some medical attention really quickly. But how did we get here in Exodus 19? What leads us up to this point? Have you spent any time in church or around church or watching movies in the late 90s? You probably know at least something about the story of the book of Exodus. The people of God, the Hebrew people, have been in slavery for over 400 years. And God calls a man named Moses to come in and to be their deliverer. And Moses walks into Egypt, into the most powerful nation in the world at the time, and he demands that the people be let go. And then God intervenes in miraculous and awesome ways and causes the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, to relinquish his power and let the people go. And they start walking toward the promised land. But the journey to the promised land isn't an easy one. And they have to walk through the wilderness to get there. And as they're walking through the wilderness, the people begin to grumble and they begin to complain. And when they grumble and complain, God provides, but not quite in the way that they would like. And so then they start grumbling and complaining again, even getting to the point where they start saying things like, why did you bring us out here in the wilderness to die? It would have been better for us to stay in Egypt because at least there we had homes and at least there we had the food that we wanted and it was slavery, but at least it wasn't death. And we look at that and we say, are you crazy? Have you lost your minds? Like you've been given freedom here. God is taking you toward the promised land. And it can be really easy to be very judgmental of the Hebrew people here. But in their defense, this was not a very fun experience. People don't talk about the wilderness as a place of comfort and a place of joy and a place of peace. And yeah, the work in Egypt was hard, but at least it was familiar. 
At least they knew what was going to come day to day. At least they knew that their base provisions were going to be met. They had no idea what was happening. This guy named Moses comes in. He tells them that he's going to lead them off into the promised land that God had established for them through their father, Abraham. And so then they leave and it looks like everything's going in the right direction. But now it's all just falling apart. And so the expectation versus reality of this post-slavery life for the people of Egypt was not at all what they were expecting. And if we're honest, I think most of us, if not all of us, can relate to this. I saw a video just scrolling through social media a few weeks ago. I don't know the guy. I don't know anything about him, but it was a podcast kind of interview, and they were talking about worship music. And I remember he said something that really grabbed me. Because, you know, you go into churches and you hear them sing these songs. And we'll just sing over and over again. You are never going to let, never going to let me down. And he said, I don't know what you're talking about because God has let me down. God's been in times in my life where I didn't have money to get from my house to work. And that really just felt like God had let me down. And I remember thinking, man, that is a bold thing to say but also a true thing to feel. Like if I had honest moments like that, there have been so many times in my life where God didn't meet my expectations, where I felt like God has let me down. And I think for most of us, if you've been walking with Jesus for any period of time in your life, most of us can have some kind of a feeling like that. We have an expectation for what God is going to do or what we want God to do. And then the result of what God actually does is either radically different than what we wanted. It takes forever to get to the point or seemingly never happens. And then we feel disappointment with God. And so there we have some commonality with our brothers and sisters walking through the wilderness in the book of Exodus. But as we're going to see later on, this feeling of disappointment with God is not the only point of commonality we have with these Israelites in the wilderness. But before we get there, we need to ask, how does God take this disappointment? How does God deal with our disappointment in him? And what can we learn from this generation's disappointment with God on how we should then deal with ours? And I think to understand that, we first need to look at God's response. Because it is incredibly kind and gracious, but also, again, probably not what they were expecting. Because as the people voice their disappointment with God, God responds by simply giving his resume. And I think one of the most subtle ways that we see the divine nature of Jesus revealed in the Gospels is his incredible way of responding to criticism, to confusion, to frustration, and to disappointment from the people around him. Because Jesus has this way of getting past the initial questions, past the initial criticisms, deeper than the surface, and addressing the real issue, whether the audience likes it or not leaving the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers and even the disciples at times saying, that's not what I was trying to address here, but Jesus just goes straight to the heart of it. 
And we see Yahweh do this exact same thing all the way through the Old Testament. We see it in Habakkuk, when Habakkuk brings his claims against God, when he brings his frustration against God, when he starts making all sorts of accusations about the character and nature of God, God doesn't give him the answers that he wants, but he gives them the answer he needs, which is, this is who I am, and this is what I do. When Job comes out of a place of passion, but also out of a place of great distress, as he's lost everything, he comes to God and he says, you just tell me what I need to do and I'll fix it. You tell me what sin I've got and I'll confess it so that we can move out of this because I can't take much more of it. And instead of giving Job a solution or an answer or a formula to get out of his situation, God says, don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done? Let me recount all of that for you. And now here, all the way back with Moses, and the people of the Exodus, as they come to God with complaints, he responds with who he is. I imagine as Moses brings these complaints to God, there is an expectation there. He's going to come and he's going to give to God all of the people's complaints. They're thirsty and they're hungry and they're tired of walking and they don't know what's going on. And so I'm going to come to God on their behalf and maybe he'll give me a plan. Yeah, I know it's been hard, Moses. I know it's been hard for everybody. You're doing a great job. Here's what we're going to do next. Here's the next steps. Here's how long this is going to take. Here's where the journey is going to end. Here's what you need to do to get to that final point. But what Moses actually got is what we see in verse three and four. It says, while Moses went up on the mountain, went up to God, the Lord called him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. The first thing that God does is the disappointment is voiced is to remind the people who he is and what he's done. Because the lack of food and the lack of water and the frustration about walking through the wilderness, those things were real problems, but they were really just surface level complaints. The actual problem within the people of Israel is that they didn't trust Yahweh. They didn't believe that God was really going to get them where he said he was going to get them because maybe he was only strong enough to get them out of Egypt. Maybe he didn't have the power to get them all the way to the promised land. And that's why we'll see not long after this that they start looking to idols to solve their problems. And so God reminds them why they should trust him. He says, guys, you literally just saw this. You saw me come into the most powerful nation in the world and you saw me conquer the Pharaoh. You saw me take away his will to hold you any longer. You saw me wash away an army. You saw me take a group of people who were a disorganized group of enslaved people in Egypt and call you out and make you a people. And even more than that, I have called you to where I am. I've called you to be my people. 
in a world where there wasn't a whole lot of trust that gods would go beyond the borders of their people, God says, I am with you and walking with you through the wilderness. And as he recounts this to the people, this is meant to be enough. This reminder of what he has done for them is meant to be enough for them to trust him, for them to follow him, and for them to obey him. And this is why it's so crucial in the lives of followers of Jesus, in the life of our church, for our foundation to be scripture, for our worship to be shaped by the gospel. Because we have to be able to remember who God is to trust what God is doing. Because we can't see and we can't fully understand and we can't grasp in our minds what God is doing. Because we have our expectations for what he should do and very rarely is that going to match up to what he's actually going to do. And as we're waiting, and sometimes it feels like we're waiting too long, And as we're struggling because we feel like God is not doing what he's supposed to be doing in those times when we don't feel very saved, when we don't feel like we belong to Christ, when everything around us is showing us something contrary to what we know we should believe, this is where we have to come back and to remember what God has done to remember the power of the gospel, to immerse ourselves in scripture and in the gospel story so that we can know who God is and thus be able to trust what God is doing. In the wilderness seasons of our lives, how seriously do we listen to the reminders all around us of the faithfulness and goodness of God? How focused are we when we come to the table And do this in remembrance of the Christ who was broken and bled and died for us as an assurance of our forgiveness and our salvation. When we sing the songs that we sing and pray the prayers that we pray and confess the things that we confess, when we hear scripture, when we read scripture, how desperately are we searching for the character and the nature of God in order to be able to trust when we don't understand? When these feelings of disappointment with God come creeping in, and they will, if you haven't experienced it yet, at some point in your life, you will know that feeling of being disappointed with God. And when those feelings come creeping in, we need to understand that the truth of it is they are usually feelings of disappointment with a false God, with a God we've created based on the expectations that we have and the kind of God that we want. And just like any form of idolatry, the best way to crush those idols is to bury them under the truth of who God really is. And to be reminded that our God is greater than any expectations we could have or any idols that we could create or any hopes that we could have beyond the gospel. He is higher and greater and better. And when we go back and search his word and search his story and remember the gospel and see all the things that God has done in our lives, that enables us to see the true God for who he truly is and to trust him in spite of our doubts and in spite of our disappointments. So God gives his resume here, but then he also makes a promise. At the beginning of verse four, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did. And then he jumps into verse five. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. 
for all the earth is mine. He says, okay, now that you remember this, now that you've been reminded of everything that I've done, now we can get back to business. And I do think it shows something really amazing about God here that he didn't just expect blind obedience. It didn't just come back down to, okay, here's the rules. Quit complaining. Do what you're supposed to do now. But he comes back and he gives them that foundation of truth on which to stand, that basis for why they should obey and why they should trust him. And here we see the distinction between God and the Pharaoh. God is not a dictatorial ruler like the Pharaoh is, but he is a loving and benevolent father king who longs for the good of his people. And so he says, remember who I am, remember what I've done, trust and believe in me, and now follow after what I've called you to do. And this is the promise I'm giving you. You'll be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is a promise of complete intimacy with the God of the universe. As they're coming out of a kingdom where they were slaves and nothing more than just property and forced labor. Now their new king, the God of the universe, is telling them, you are my prized possession. You are going to be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You are going to be something you could have never imagined. But there is a requirement to see this promise. He says, if you want to obtain this promise, there's something you've got to do to be able to obtain it. And we could look at that and say, okay, well, that seems odd. There's some sort of, uh, this is benevolence, but there's a forced obedience to be able to get this promise. But again, here we see that this is not just God calling them to obedience for the sake of obedience and nothing more. He's calling them to be obedient, obey his commands because they don't know where they're going. On their own devices, they end up walking in the wilderness for 40 years on a journey that should have taken them about three weeks. Now, I've gotten lost on some trails before, <laughs> but never quite like that. These people have no clue where they're going or what they're doing. And so God says, I have this promise for you, but you're going to have to follow me to get there because you don't know the way to go. But if you follow me, I'll show you the way. And I love the response here because they come back and they just say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And some of them did. Now, again, this whole thing falls apart in just a couple chapters because Moses goes up to get the commandments of God for them to follow. And most of the people turn to start following after idols. And that's a common theme throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. But we see this beautiful theme running through that there's a constant faithful remnant of people who dedicate their lives to obeying God and to following after Yahweh and believing that he has a promise for them. And we see this take place in the book of Hebrews. We get the account of these people who lived their life in faithful obedience to God. Starting in verse 13. It says, These all died in faith, 
not receiving these things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. If we jump over to verse 29, the writer of Hebrews summarizes the entire lineage of the later half of the Old Testament saying, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled the city for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered. They suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. It's a roller coaster ride of a passage. And it's bookended with a really hard truth. Because these people literally gave their lives in obedience to God. They were willing to go wherever he called them to go, to do whatever he called them to do, to endure whatever he called them to endure, and then they gave their lives and did not receive what was promised to them. So was it a waste? Has God disappointed again that these people said everything Yahweh has promised we will do and they did everything that Yahweh promised and they died without the promise? Of course, the answer is no. Because not only does God make a promise, but God keeps his promise. Now, from a very temporal point of view, these people absolutely wasted their lives. But things aren't temporal. God is not temporal and his people are not temporal and his promises are not temporal. All of these people gave their lives in obedience to gain a promise that was eternal. And then it was generations later. The writer of Hebrews says that they couldn't receive it yet because God had better things that were going to be revealed through us, through the church. 
Because generations later, in the fullness of time, God would send forth his son into the world. The fulfillment of the promise that he made with the people of Israel. God sent his son into the world who lived and measured up to every standard of the law, who offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross and then rose again so that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and will receive that promise. As we're going through 1 Peter, some of the same language came up. As Peter placed on these early Christians a stamp that marked them as the fulfillment of the promise that God had made with Abraham, that God had made with Moses. As Peter looks at these early Christians and now looks at us and says, you have become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation making it very clear that the work that Jesus accomplished brought that promise into full view in the lives of the followers of Jesus that now take on that mantle that so many people who came before us gave their lives in search for. We belong to that city whose builder and architect is God. God has fulfilled his promise to the people of Exodus. And all of those who gave their lives in obedience to him have received their reward because they are with God through Jesus. And we are evidence that that promise has been fulfilled. But of course, the story doesn't stop there, right? Because God has made us a promise. Because just like there was the promise that from the seed of the woman was going to come the conqueror who's going to crush the head of the serpent and call into existence a new people whose word of God was written on their hearts, who were sons and daughters of the almighty God, who were a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God has made us a promise that he's not finished with that salvation work. We have the promise that one day Jesus will come again to make everything right and everything new, to bring redemption and restoration once and for all, not only for his people, but for the world in which we live. But sometimes that promise is hard to believe because we don't see it right now. I think there's a reason why Throughout history, cult after cult after cult has been started based on proclamation saying, I know when Jesus is going to come back. Because we're desperate for that promise to be fulfilled. Because we look around and we say, yeah, God has saved me. But save me to what? I still feel like I'm here in the wilderness. Sure, I've got the salvation and I can take communion. I've been through baptism and all those good things. And yeah, I guess I believe that God loves me, but maybe it was better back before. 
Because life is harder on this side of Jesus. Life is more complicated on this side of Jesus. What does God save me for? So life would be harder so that I have to make sacrifices that other people don't make so that I am constantly, like we talked about last week, in conflict, trying to live incarnationally in ministry, which makes the people that I love who are religious hate me and who makes the people that I'm trying to love and serve and care for really uncomfortable with my presence. And so I never feel like I have a home and I always feel like I'm out of places that really what God has saved me to and so sometimes it can be hard to believe or hard to understand but we can know that God will keep his promise and how do we know this because we know that God keeps his promises We see testimony after testimony in Scripture of God making promises and fulfilling those promises. But even beyond that, each and every one of us who bear the name of Jesus are evidence that God keeps His promises. We are affirmation that God keeps His promise because my salvation and your salvation was promised to people thousands of years before we drew a breath. And we are the affirmation that yes, God does keep his promises. And now it's our job to both believe that to be true and then to declare that truth, to take on the role of Moses and share with one another that beautiful reminder that God will do what he said he will do to be declarers of the good news to people of God who have grown weary from journeying in the wilderness. The hard reality of life with Jesus is that we are probably going to die before we see the promise of Jesus fulfilled. We're going to find ourselves in the same position as those people in Hebrews chapter 11. We've received a foretaste of the promise, But we're probably not going to get to experience the fullness of that promise before we breathe our last. And so the reality is that most of us will die giving our entire lives and following Jesus. And from an outsider point of view, people will be able to look at our lives and call it a waste. They'll say they gave their entire life believing this promise that Jesus was going to make everything new. And now look at them. They're dead just like everybody else. Isn't that a waste? Isn't it a disappointment? And there may even be times in our lives where we experience feelings like this is a waste, where we start to believe, you know what? I don't actually think that God will keep his promise. And I can tell you from personal experience, there are times when I'm laying awake at night thinking, am I wasting my life? Is giving so much to following after Jesus, to church and to ministry, is this just a waste? Could I be doing something else? Should I be doing something else? Am I going to breathe my last and find myself disappointed? Because maybe there's nothing on the other side. Because maybe God can't fulfill those promises. But even in those wilderness times where doubt and disappointment reign so deeply, we can trust 
that God will keep his promises. Because God has always kept his promises. And if we obey his voice, if we follow after his word made flesh, if we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, then one day we will know the beauty of his promise fulfilled. Whether it's when we breathe our last breath and close our eyes and we experience the promise that Paul made that to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ, or if the fullness of time comes when God sends his son into the world once again to redeem and restore all of these things, when we finally get to step into eternity, we will get to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And we'll be able to take our place amongst the faithful witnesses of the book of Hebrews. And of every man and woman and child who has bore the name of Jesus throughout history as we come into not only the presence of Jesus for all eternity, but we receive the promise of Jesus for all eternity. And so let's be the kind of people who say, yeah, everything the Lord commands we will do. And even if it costs me everything, even my life, I'm ready and willing to give it all because I know and I believe that I have a God who keeps his promises, a God who sustains his people, and a God who will fulfill this promise that he's made. Let's pray. Father God, Even, even in preaching this passage, it's just one that can easily inspire a lot of fear and uncertainty. Also a lot of guilt and, and some shame in the times when I've doubted you and then you have just proven yourself over and over again. And a little confusion about why, even though I've seen you provide over and over again, that I still am guaranteed to doubt you when hard times come through again, when I find myself in the wilderness again. God, we can be so fickle because you can give us water from rocks and manna from heaven and we still complain. You can lead us out of slavery and our sins. You can deliver us from temptation. You can deliver us from hardships. And we still doubt. You can provide in ways that we could have never imagined and we can still be disappointed. So God, we thank you for your patience. That you are so, so benevolently patient with us. We thank you for those sometimes gentle and sometimes not gentle reminders of who you are and what you've done for us. God, we thank you for the ever-present reminder of the gospel. We thank you for the table that we're about to come to that just interjects itself into our weekly lives and reminds us that Christ was broken for us, that Christ bled for us, that Christ died for us so that we can have communion with you. God, help us to be desperately looking for these affirmations and reminders that you are a promise keeper. 
And God, use these things to give us the strength to continue the journey through the wilderness, to walk forward in obedience, to make the cry of the people in the wilderness the banner of our lives, that all that you've commanded us, we will do as we long to follow you into the promised land that you have prepared for us before the foundation of the earth. Give us strength, give us comfort, and give us trust as we seek after your promise in the wilderness. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.